The fool says in his heart there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they become corrupt. There's no one who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge? All the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but to the, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. That's Psalm 14, which along with Psalms 12 and 13 are the psalms appointed for today, Wednesday, August the 24th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. We're continuing with Job's answer to the first speech of Eliphaz the Temanite. Um, and he's going to continue to say, look, life isn't worth living. In the uh, gospel, we're in John 7, verses 1 to 13, and then in the uh, book of the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 10, verses 1 to 16. So Job is continuing his answer to Eliphaz the Temanite. Has not a man, not man, a hard service on earth, and are not his days like the days of a hired hand? Like a slave who longs for the shadow, and like a hired hand who looks for his wages, so I am allotted months of emptiness, and nights of misery are apportioned to me. You know, and it's, it's an interesting thing, because we don't have any sense that Job felt this way before affliction came upon him. And I think sometimes that that's the, the most uh, important thing, that's going on in our lives, and how do we deal with affliction and difficulty in our life? Because it's going to come. It's going to happen. And so how do we deal with that? And then the way we deal with that becomes the, the way out of that as well. Because do we look on everything as, as horrible in our lives? Are we so um, myopic that we don't even see suffering unless it happens to us? And I think that's one of the biggest things that we, the church, need to understand. And it's the reason that Jesus says things like, blessed are those who mourn. Because that mourning has to do with mourning over the state of the world. And to, are, we, are we aware of the state of the world? Are we aware of suffering in the world? Or, or do we have such a myopic sense of that that we, we can overlook it? And we can only focus on the shiny thing that the press or whoever puts in front of us today. And so we focus on those things and we ignore everything else. And, and sometimes the only way God can get our attention to suffering in the world is, is to allow suffering to come into our own lives. And here we don't have any sense that Job was praying these kinds of prayers before something bad happened to him. When I lie down, I say, when shall I arise? But the night is long, and I am full of tossing till the dawn. My flesh is clothed with worms and dirt. My skin hardens, then breaks out afresh. My days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle and come to their end without hope. I mean, this is this most nihilistic uh, set of statements that, that he could possibly make. I mean, there's nothing good. There's nothing worthwhile. There's no reason to live. Remember that my life is a breath. It's just you know, here today and gone tomorrow, my eye will never again see good. The eye of him who sees me will behold me no more. <clears throat> While your eyes are on me, I shall be gone. As the cloud fades and vanishes, so he who goes down to Sheol does not come up. He returns no more to his house, nor does his place know him anymore. I mean, this is just abject hopelessness. And, and it's questioning the meaning of life itself. Is there any meaning to life or does it just suck until you die? 
Is that what it is? Is that really the meaning of life? And that, that's what the despair that he's in at this point. He can't see any hope of getting out of this. And it's the same kind of thing you see in, in Jonah's prayer, actually, from the belly of the fish in, in Jonah 2. It talks about the awful things, the awful situation that he's in. And then at the end says salvation belongs to the Lord. So he sees the hope of salvation, but here Job is so deep in his own despair and in his own pain that, that he can't see any hope. I mean, and you can understand, based on what he has gone through and the, the desolation that's been brought on his life, you can understand why he would feel exactly the way he does. There's no hope. I mean, I've lost everything in my life that gave me hope and everything that gave me joy. It's all gone. <clears throat> Therefore, I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. Now, one of the other things that I want to mention here is, is that what Job's doing is not wrong by any stretch of the imagination. God doesn't rebuke Job at the end of the day for all this stuff. He, he, he answers him in God's way with the only answers that he can possibly give him. But, but the thing that Job's doing that's right is that he's bringing this before the Lord. He's not sitting there conversing with his friends this is prayer he's not saying god's mean he's not grumbling or murmuring against god he's he's taking his case directly to god am i the sea or a sea monster that you set a guard over me really am i that bad when i say my bed will comfort me my couch will ease my complaint then you scare me with dreams and terrify me with visions so even if I lie down and close my eyes and think I'll get some rest here, even then I don't get any rest because of the dreams and visions so that I would choose strangling and death rather than my bones. I would rather die than continue to live. There's no place to go, no place to hide, even in sleep. And again, this sounds so much like David in Psalm 139. Where would I go to escape from your love? If I go here, I can't escape. If I go down there, I can't escape. There's no place to go. And then he finally comes in with, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. That God is everywhere. He is omnipresent. That's comforting only because he is a God who loves. It's only comforting because God loves those who are created in his image. He says, I loathe my life. I would not live forever. Leave me alone, for my days are a breath. What is man that you make much of him, and that you set your heart on him, visit him every morning, and test him every moment? So he's saying this, this whole thing is my, my days are a breath. That, that's Ecclesiastes language. I think it goes the other way around, actually, that, that Ecclesiastes borrows that statement, my days are a breath, hevel, vanity, the wind. That's the word. That's exactly the same word. My days are breath. What is man that you make so much of him? That's Psalm 8. David asks that question. What is man that you make so much of him that you set your heart on him, visit him every morning, and test him every moment? Look away. Look away from me. How long will you not look away from me, nor leave me alone till I swallow my spit? If I sin, what do I do to you, you watcher of mankind? Why have you made me your mark? Why have I become a burden to you? And you know the funny thing? This is exactly the opposite of what God was doing. God did notice and make much of Job to Satan. He made much of Job. He's the watcher of mankind in the sense that he watches over, and he's the one who says, hey, have you checked out my boy Job over there? 
Why have you made me your mark? He wasn't God's mark. He's the mark of the Satan because God delights in him. Why have I become such a burden to you? Why do you not pardon my transgression and take away my iniquity? Job agrees. There must be sin here. I don't know what it is. Why can't that just be forgiven? Why do I have to go through this hell on earth? For now, I shall lie in the earth. You will seek me, but I shall not be. Basically, he says, I'm going to lay down here and die. And that's all that he can imagine. That's the best outcome Job can imagine at this moment in his life. Because there's no answer to how could it be that I did something so awful that I lost my family, my wealth, and my health? How could that possibly be explained in the universe? And then because of that, who would want to live? And he doesn't see God as the lover of his soul. He sees him as his enemy. And that God has made Job his enemy. That's his real complaint. In the gospel today, so Jesus had just spoken and and watched all these disciples walk away from him because of his insistence on eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And now he goes about in Galilee. He He spoke at the synagogue at Capernaum, which is in Galilee. And so now he's going around that area again. He wouldn't go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brother said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. So they're thinking as they would think. You know, no, no, no. If you want to be a big shot, if you want to be somebody, then go down to Jerusalem, because that's the place where the big shots go. I mean, to be like saying, you know, New York, New York, if I can make it there, I can make it anywhere. That, so that's what they're suggesting is, it, don't hang around up here in the backwaters. Go down there. Go down to Jerusalem. If you want to be known openly, then don't do your works in secret. Don't do them up here in the hinterlands. Do them down there on the biggest stage you can get. For not even his brothers believed in him. So they're seeing the things that he's doing, but but they're not believing who their brother is. They're not believing it at all. They're discounting it. This is not them encouraging him to go and further his ministry. It's like more along the lines of, um, you know, okay, so whatever, we're, we're not big believers in what you're doing up here. If you, if you go down there and do it, we'll believe, is essentially what they're saying. If, you, if, you, if you'll do it down there, then we'll believe in you too. <clears throat> and Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. You and I are not the same. If you think about Joseph and his brothers here if, from the stories in Genesis where they sell him into slavery because they, they say, oh, he's, he's raising himself above us by, these, by telling us these dreams that he has. And then dad's raised him up above us, too, and, and we resent that. So we're going to sell him into slavery until daddy's dead. We're not going to tell him that directly. We're just going to imply it by showing him his coat. So he says, my time's not here yet. Yours always is. The world can't hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. So I'm condemning the situation in the world. And when he says the world here, he's not just talking about the Romans. He's talking about the Jews as well. I'm exposing it for what it is. He says, you go up to the feast. I'm not going to the feast for my time has not yet fully come. This is the same thing he tells his mother at Cana in Galilee. My time has not yet come. What do you want from me? And here he tells them, you go up to the feast. You go on up to Sukkot uh, to the Feast of Booths. I'm not going because he knows they want to kill him. After saying this, he remained in Galilee, but after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. So he, he didn't make a big splash about being in Jerusalem. He'll do that. 
He'll do that on Palm Sunday. But now is not the time for that. There's things that have to happen first, and he's following the direction of the Father. And so what he can say sometimes is, even I don't know certain things. So at the moment that he makes this speech, he's, he's saying, I, I don't, I'm not supposed to go up. But then later, the Father says, go. But go privately. Go quietly into town. Don't make a big deal out of it. And the Jews were looking for him at the feast and asking, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he's a good man, others said, no, he's leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. So what we're hearing in that last piece, for fear of the Jews, is confirmation that they wanted to kill him. And they can't, they're not allowed to talk about Jesus because then they would be accused of associating themselves with one who they consider to be a heretic and ultimately a blasphemer. So... That they know this, the people know this, and so they're, they're kind of keeping things on the down low. They keep their, their conversations away from the leaders because they don't want to be those who are found believing. In the epistle at Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God, and that would be Yahweh. So he, he has not become a Jew, but he has become a believer in the God of the Jews. And so he's a man who fears God with all his household. So he is a God-fearer. That was an official term for somebody who had not become a convert by, by going the route of circumcision. And so that's who this Cornelius is. He's a good and devout man who feared God with all his household. In other words, he had brought them into that believing place as well. He gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. Now, when John the Baptist is around, he, he fusses at the, uh, the soldiers for not giving generously, instead for taking. About the ninth hour of the day, so three o'clock in the afternoon, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? I mean, this is a terrifying image that he's got. It's, it's that same word that, that, that gets translated as sore afraid to do with the shepherds when the angel initially shows up to them. And, and we would be terrified if we saw an angel. We absolutely would. And if they called us by name, man, it would be absolutely frightening beyond belief. And so he, the angel, said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He's lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. So, okay. Thank you. My prayers and the things that the good works that I've done have ascended to the Father. He's aware of these things. And now I'm supposed to send for this guy, Simon, who is also called Peter, who's lodging with another man called Simon, who's a tanner, and he's over there in Joppa. So when the angel spoke to him, had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. So we know his household belief. That would have included these servants that he's sending here. And then he chooses, in addition to them, another man a devout soldier from among those who attended him. So one of the soldiers had come to believe as well. And so he sends him. Now, he sends the servant and the soldier. Now, is the soldier there as, as sort of a, 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 do you get my message? You need to come with us kind of a thing. And we're just not sure. But he sends one who is a devout soldier. So this one's a believer as well. And having relayed everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, 
As they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up onto the housetop at about the sixth hour to pray. So it's noon. It's time for lunch. And he became hungry and he wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending being let down by its four corners upon the earth. So Peter sees in this trance, so he's not asleep, God put him into this place. He's in the spirit, as it were, which is exactly what John says. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and then I was taken up. And so that's exactly what's happening here. This trance that he's talking about is is the Lord's giving him a vision. And remember that that, um, uh, Job has complained about the vision that he's been getting because every time he tries to get away from his troubles, he gets a vision, and the vision terrifies him. Cornelius had a vision and got terrified. Peter gets a vision here in this trance. God gives him this vision. <clears throat> so he sees the heavens opened, all right, and then something like a great sheet descended, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice and said to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Some of, the, some of these things are forbidden for me to eat, starting with the reptiles, because you don't eat reptiles. That's part of the pro- food prohibition, and, and certainly not all the birds of the air. So he sees this thing coming down with all these uh, potential sources of meat, let's say. And then and, uh, and the voice says, Rise, Peter, go and kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I've never eaten anything that's common or unclean. I've kept kosher all my life. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God's made clean, don't call common. That's an offensive term. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once into heaven. So Peter has to be sitting there thinking, what in the world does this mean? What what are they going to bring me for lunch? (laughs) So what is it, and what does it mean? And So Peter has to sort all this out. And so you've got to see that Peter's sitting there on on this roof in, in absolute wonder thinking, what in the world just happened? What what was that vision? What am I supposed to make of it? And what am I supposed to do with it? How in the world would I tell my fellow Jews that God said, I made things clean that were unclean? How am I supposed to deal with that? So it would have been a very confusing thing for Peter. And, and how do you deal with that? How do you deal with it when God gives you a confusing word? Well, you ponder it first, and you ask him, what does that mean, Lord? What are you trying to say to me? Don't run out in your own power and in your own understanding. Wait. Wait. If, if you're not sure, wait for him to make it clear. Do what Mary did. Ponder these things in your heart while you try and figure out the meaning of all things. And, and, and believe me, all things do have meaning. We can never know the fullness of the meaning they have, but we certainly can know that they're meaningful. We can't become nihilists. This world, this life, everything in it means something. And it's intended to display the glory of God. It's important that we consider our lives to be important pieces of God's story. And if we're in Christ Jesus, then, then we know that they are. But, but that life has meaning beyond my own hope of eternal life. N- then it becomes, how do you use me? How can I be an instrument of your glory? and an important part of the work of bringing the world to know you. What can I do, and how can I do it? He gives meaning to life. 
Life has meaning and life has purpose. And that's the whole point of the incarnation of Jesus. My life has meaning and purpose. That's the point of the resurrection and the crucifixion. And so we can rejoice and we can live joyful lives with purpose no matter what the circumstances of our lives may be.